It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 230 for February 20th, 2010. Recorded, ooh, wow, early this week. February 17th, that's a Thursday, 2010. Somehow it just doesn't seem right to refer to On One's perfect photo suite as an add-on. After all, it's a $500 package currently on sale for $400, and it adds framing effects with photo frame, a huge array of photographic effects with photo tools, a powerful resizing feature with perfect resize, a background remover with Mask Pro, color correction with PhotoTune, and even the ability to add bokeh with focal point. Bokeh? You may have heard the term before. It's the name for the effect that has the primary point of interest in a photograph in sharp focus, while the rest of the image is much softer. Film cameras with slow film and long lenses made bokeh easy. Most digital cameras make attaining good bokeh difficult, and most point-and-shoot digital cameras make it all but impossible. PhotoSuite 5.5, a free upgrade from version 5.0, fixes some problems with the 5.0 release, and it makes a few additional improvements. Serious amateur photographers and professionals will find these tools to be a very worthwhile addition to their digital darkroom. Let's start with photo tools and basic image correction. You'll see some photos on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and when we come to digital photography, visiting the website is the only way to go. I can't describe these things in English. The photo you'll see is of Phoebe. She's a cat. And as you'll see when you go to the website, the starting image was too dark and rather low in contrast. The entire photo suite is available from the Photoshop menu, but it can also be placed on a flyout that makes each of the components readily available. That's what I recommend you do. Most of the components offer presets that you can use as is or as a starting point for your own work. You'll see an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website of a preset that converts color images to monochrome. Now, you might think that this would be easy. Just desaturate the image. But if you do that... The result will be flat and uninteresting. With photo tools, you have the kind of controls that were available to photographers who used various kinds of films, papers, and developers to achieve the effects they desired. In other words, you may not be Ansel Adams, but you can play him on your computer. When the monochrome rendition is returned to Photoshop, it is placed in a separate layer, this means you can easily remove the effect if you want, or perform additional modifications, such as, for example, masking the eyes on the monochrome version so that the color eyes show through. This is a popular effect these days. Moving along, we come to PhotoTune, the color correction module. It offers many of the features you'll find in Adobe Camera Raw. Actually, the number of choices is significantly smaller with PhotoTune, but this makes the modifications easier to understand. There are four primary areas of correction. Tone, color, skin tune, 
and detail. I'll take a look at each separately. And again, I have to recommend you visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. I start with the image that shows what tone suggested. I liked the improvement, but I thought I could do maybe a little better. I made some slight adjustments to the settings and then zoomed in on the image. You'll see how the changes improve the image's detail. Next, I moved to the color tab. Decided to boost the red slightly. I did that because the cat has a significant red component in her fur. The change is fairly subtle, but it's there. And when it comes to skin tune, this doesn't make a lot of improvement for a cat. I mean, after all, uh, most of a cat's skin is hidden under the fur. But I used the eyedropper tool and selected a spot on Phoebe's nose, and Phototune did make a slight correction, and one I liked. The Detail tab is for sharpening. Most images can use a little bit of sharpening, and images that originated from the camera's RAW mode almost always need sharpening. It's important to observe this effect at 100% image size, though. Otherwise, you can overdo it. So the final image from Phototune, as far as I'm concerned, is quite a bit better than the original. But note that by default, Phototune returns the rendered image as the background image, not as a layer on the original image. This is dangerous. It should be avoided. In fact, it can be avoided. You simply need to change the default preference to apply changes to a copy of the current layer. And in my opinion, that should be the default. So on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see the final result. The images, when you view them more or less full size, appear rougher than they should, because in addition to being slightly over-sharpened, they are reduced to fit on the website. That reduction enhances the sharpening to the detriment of the images. The word to the wise, be very careful with sharpening. And then there's photo frame. Maybe you'd like to put a frame around your image or add a burnt edge effect, a torn paper effect, or one of the other treatments that you'll see often in professional publishing or in scrapbooking. The photo frame component has what appears to be hundreds of presets, and each preset can have many of its settings modified. I selected a basic acid burn effect and then started exploring the four areas that can be modified. Background, border, color, and shadow. Under background, I can modify the opacity, blur, noise, size, orientation, and color. Under border, my choices are opacity, blur, noise, width, interior color, and exterior color. Under the color tab, there is interior and outer glow, radiance, opacity, noise, and width. And on the shadow tab, there's opacity, blur, noise, inner and outer color, vertical offset, and horizontal offset. Wow! A lot of choices here. I made some changes, including adding some of the green from Phoebe's eyes to the outline. I also changed the opacity a bit and blurred some of the background. By default, PhotoFrame applies its effects as a layer mask so they can be modified or removed later. So on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see the final framed Phoebe. As for bottom line, sorry, not yet. PhotoSuite 5.5 is simply too large to cover in a single program, so I'll continue this review of the application's features next week. In the meantime, if you want to see more, visit the On1 Software's website for PhotoSuite 5.5.
And you'll, of course, find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Here's a question for you. Is Firefox 4 Beta 11 for you? Now, you're supposed to hold the answer to the question until the final sentence of the last paragraph when you're writing something like this, but I'm going to answer it right here, right now. And the answer is probably not. Now, there's nothing wrong with Firefox 4, but using beta software carries some baggage that you might not want to store. I can say that version 4 is going to be one great release, and I'll share with you some of the features in the new version. The problem, though, with a beta version is that it will, not might, but will break some of your add-ons. You can work around this problem with the nightly tester tool add-on that forces add-ons to ignore the Firefox version, and doing so will allow your favorite add-ons to work most of the time. Most of the time. Not all. Some add-ons will just fail silently. Others may crash Firefox. If you really depend on specific add-ons, this could be a real concern. For example, I use Symantec's Identity Safe to supply usernames and passwords for many sites. Even though the nightly tester tool has forced it to be compliant, it doesn't work at all in Beta 4. This isn't really a problem because I've stored important information elsewhere. It's just a minor annoyance. But it's the kind of thing you need to be aware of. And although Firefox is currently at its 11th beta, there's no guarantee that the final code will be released anytime soon. In fact, the Mozilla website goes to extreme measures not to mention any specific date. It could be next week. It might be 2017. In all honesty, it's probably going to be closer to next week than to 2017, but you never know. The new version will have a Do Not Track option. Visit the Advanced tab on the Options screen and click Do Not Track if you're worried about being tracked by sites. This causes Firefox to send an opt-out message in the HTTP request header to tell sites you don't want to be tracked. You may have already noticed the problem there. This depends on sites both understanding the message and complying with it. So this may be more theater of security, like the TSA, than real security. Mozilla privacy lead Alex Fowler defends the practice and calls it the first of many steps that are under consideration. I quote Fowler, We believe the header-based approach has the potential to be better for the web in the long run, because it is a cleaner and more universal opt-out mechanism than cookies or blacklists. To which I say, true, but only if everyone obeys the rules. Tab Candy is another new feature. Asa Raskin, a Firefox developer, says it's hard to keep everything straight with dozens of tabs all crammed into a little strip along the top of your browser. Your tab with a search to find a pizza parlor gets mixed up with your tabs on your favorite band. Often, it's easier to open a new tab than to try to find the open tab you already have. Worse, how many of us keep tabs open as reminders of something we want to do or read later? We're all suffering from info guilt, says Raskin. We need a way to organize browsing to see all of our tabs at once and focus on the task at hand. In short, says Raskin, we need a way to get back control of our online lives. 
On TechBiter Worldwide this week, we have a video from Asa Raskin describing the Tab Candy feature. You'll want to check that out. You'll find lots of interface changes, too. For some reason, the home page icon is now near the far right edge of the browser, and it took me a while to find it. Users may choose to keep tabs where they were or move them to the top. I moved the tabs to the top, and that seems to be exactly the right place for them to be. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a before and after version of that. If you are interested in downloading the beta version, keeping in mind the warning that some features won't work as expected, you'll find a link to Firefox version 4 beta 11 from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And there's a new version of Microsoft Internet Explorer. That's version 9. It'll be released soon, too. And the betas have received excellent reviews. If you're using a version of Internet Explorer 7 or before, Firefox 2 or earlier, any version of Netscape, Opera 10 or before, Chrome 8 or earlier, I have just one question for you. Why? In short circuits, you've probably heard some of these numbers before. Radio needed 38 years to reach 50 million users. Television took 13 years to do that. The Internet hit 50 million users in four years. In three years, Apple sold 50 million iPods. Facebook? (laughs) Well, they added 200 million users in less than one year. Radio was considered to be a fad. Television was considered a fad. The Internet considered a fad. So was the telephone. So was the iPod. You may have noticed a trend here. And with that, I recommend to you a YouTube video. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The video is approximately four and a half minutes long. Some of it may surprise you. If you don't care for the audio, just kill the sound. The text, after all, is all you need. That, and according to the Beatles, love. Apple's iPad, despite the goofy name, was supposed to be something that could be used to distribute work by journalists. You know, newspapers, magazines, things like that. Then Apple announced the details. Apple will take a 30% cut of subscriptions. For what? This is insane. 5% fine. 10% eh, it's maybe a little pushing, but okay. 15% ridiculous. 30% obscene. I have a link this week to an article by Forbes magazine's Jeff Berkovici, who explains the problem. Journalism's business model depends on advertisers to foot most of the bill while requiring very little from the users of the media. Publishers offer cheap subscriptions, maybe 10 to $12 a year, just to attract new subscribers. This is, in some cases, less than the cost of postage for a year. But publishers realize enough renewals at full price to make the introductory offers worthwhile. In addition to taking a 30% cut, Apple insists that publishers include their best offers to iPad subscribers. Okay, so here's an opinion alert. This heightens my belief that while Apple might be a company that creates some outstanding products, it is not a company I would care to work for. It tends to be greedy, and it doesn't even treat its own customers very well. Here's Steve Jobs' pronouncement on the deal. And I quote, 
Our philosophy is simple. When Apple brings a new subscriber to the app, Apple earns a 30% share. When the publisher brings an existing or new subscriber to the app, the publisher keeps 100% and Apple earns nothing. All we require is that if a publisher is making a subscription offer outside the app, the same or better offer be made inside the app so that customers can easily subscribe with one click right in the app. We believe that this innovative subscription service will provide publishers with a brand new opportunity to expand digital access to their content onto the iPad, iPod, Touch, and iPhone, delighting both new and existing subscribers. Close quote. Amazon certainly will have a competitive answer, so perhaps will others. How all of this will play out is still very much open to question, but certainly it doesn't seem that Apple is doing its fans or journalists or publishers any favors. And should that really surprise anybody? In the late 1990s, I encountered my first thumb drive at PC Expo in New York City. Offered by an Israeli company, the device allowed anyone to carry 16 megabytes of data. Wow, more than a dozen floppy disks worth in a device no larger than a thumb. It would fit in a pocket easily. Cost? About 50 bucks. Well, this week I bought a 16 gigabyte thumb drive for about $22, including shipping. A day later, I saw an ad for a 32-gigabyte thumb drive for just $10 more. The 16-gigabyte drive is 1,000 times more memory at half the price of the original devices. This kind of pricing is normal for electronic devices, particularly for hard drives and now for solid-state devices. But that doesn't make the difference any less breathtaking. In fact, the price for some devices is now just a fraction of 1% of what it was just a decade ago. Solid-state disk drives are approaching the point at which they will really be competitive with standard hard drives. Solid-state drives are faster, less prone to vibration cause, damage, lighter, and smaller. So what's left to say other than, wow. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.